The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. We've added in a round of of human rights, environmental, country and industry risk factors that we identify up front again and understand the company's approach to sustainability because we know that over time it's a very good way to think about risk. It's also a very good way to think about the opportunities for the business moving forward. Well, hello, my name is Matt Nicard. I'm co-founder and CEO of Ethical Partners Funds Management, and welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Now, our podcast is a bit different to many business and investing podcasts that are out there. It features successful investors, whether that be in the stock market, private equity, or leading a company or division, but these people also give back in a significant way to society in their own way. And look, we've had a really, really good response to the podcast so far. So thank you to all the listeners out there. We've had some terrific guests, Michael Trail, Chris Cuff, Barry Irvin, uh, Chair of Bega, um, Susan Lloyd-Hurwitz of Mervac has had the most downloads so far. That was a fascinating two-part interview. And Andrew Wilson of Ethical Partners did a terrific interview of Stuart Diver recently. To survive the Threadbow landslide and then later be the general manager of that same resort is quite a story of resilience and determination. Our guest today is Nathan Parkin, the investment director and also co-founder of Ethical Partners. Nathan, which has been your favourite Good Investing podcast so far? Well, thanks, Matt. My favourite so far has been the first one, Michael Trail. Just thinking about uh, some of the lessons that he talked about, really good life lessons and particularly the running analogy, I really enjoyed Well, Nathan, how are you? Are you ready for this interview today? There's some pretty hard-hitting questions coming up. I just want to warn you in advance. Seriously, though, it's it's been a great opportunity for listeners, um, we think, in this podcast to understand your perspective on investment and markets generally. But first of all, a short bio. It's fair to say Nathan lives and breathes markets, businesses, companies, and the market generally. So, When you are that way inclined, it's only natural you start your career at the epicentre of it all. Nathan, talk us through your first job at the ASX. Thanks, Matt. My first job at the ASX was an index analyst, uh, and I was lucky enough to get a job with a guy called David Peacock, who I'm sure he wouldn't mind me calling in this, but he, he looked and sounded like a mad scientist of statistics, and he had been a guy that had been at the stock exchange for about 25 years when I turned up and was essentially the person that started the All Ordinaries Index in Australia and was the unofficial his, his, historical uh, statistician of the ASX. Uh, so I found him a fascinating guy. I learned many, many lessons from David. So what did that job entail? And, and was that in the day of the Chalkies or you're not quite that old? Not quite that old, but the Chalkies finished in about 1987 and so it wasn't really that far off that, um, but we really we were charged with compiling the index, the market index, adding companies, deleting companies, and all of the uh, statistics that went out in hard copies um, to all of the subscribers for those services in the day. And what did you learn there, Nathan, from that job that stayed with you for your whole career? 
I remember one lesson that David taught me. When you're dealing with numbers uh, and you've got a problem in front of you, you should always know roundabouts what the answer should be before you start tackling the question. And it's something that really stayed with me since then and it's really been a helpful reminder all the way through the rest of my career. So after three years at the ASX, you moved to Perpetual in 1997, and it was quite a different place then to what it is now, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So I started as an account manager for institutional clients, and the institutional business there at the time was in its infancy, and I think we had two clients and managed a couple of hundred million dollars. And I didn't know a lot about funds management then, but I knew equity markets were for me, and I was lucky enough to join a business um, where some of the best stock pickers in the industry uh, happened to work. So the likes of Peter Morgan and John Sevier and, and Matt Williams. And then on the business side, uh, I worked with people like David Cooper and Emilio Gonzalez, who just taught me so much about the funds management business. And at the same time, I, I had the uh, opportunity to work with some of the best asset consultants and asset owners in the industry back then, um, who I learned an incredible amount from and then uh, who've had also continue to have uh, a very big influence on my career. So I'd kind of fallen into a place that had attracted some of the best people in the industry. Now, there's certainly some big names there. You you went on to be the head of institutional business, building up the institutional client base. Maybe just describe for us the state of the markets then and how that impacted your job. So I was at Perpetual from 1997 to 2003, and it really covered that whole period uh, in the lead up to the dot-com crash. So we were in a, as Perpetual as an investment house at the time, was in a pretty tough spot because you know, we were losing clients. Underperformance of the funds was, was a thing there because we were underweight tech and the market was roaring away and the funds were, were stagnating in terms of performance. And I remember losing a client out of one of our small cap funds that, that Matt was running at the time. Um, and it always stick in my mind because it was a couple of months before the dot-com crash actually manifested. And this client had moved money from, you know, essentially a value a small cap fund to a global tech fund. And it really just, uh, I remember back, you know, the lesson from then, and it, and it still sticks with me today, is that, you know, stick to your style and and, and back yourself when you, when you know that the investing is good quality and, and you know that the process works uh, because, you, you know, people lose their nerve at those, at those times in the market. And it certainly would have been an interesting time to be a value-oriented manager then, that's for sure. Uh, you, you then made your move to a startup at the time, 452 Capital, which became really successful quite quickly. And you did seven years there as a dealer and investment analyst. I, I imagine that provided a tremendous grounding for being responsible for running money as a PM when you actually moved back to Perpetual in 2010. It, it really did. Uh, I went from the head of institutional business at Perpetual to being a junior equities dealer at 452 as that business was growing. And I did that because I desperately wanted to prove myself and 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 find out about the equities business and and ultimately hopefully end up running money. I um I was like lucky again to to move into that role as, as a dealer and one of the things that resulted in my getting an interview for that role was I ran into Peter Morgan on the street of uh, Hunter Street and Pitt Streets in Sydney, 
Um, and that resulted in me getting an interview, which um, when, when I got that role, it was my first role in a boutique funds management shop. And, and really the culture, um, the drive, the freedom, it, it was liberating. And so that, that was a great role. I remember as a dealer, I used all of the time that uh, I had before work, at lunchtime and after work, attending company meetings at uh, at a broker uh, or stockbrokers like Linwa that was around in the day uh, because I had all the small cap management teams coming through. So I tried to soak up as much information as I possibly could. Um, and I guess that was a, a culture that allowed for that and encouraged it. I then went on to be an analyst there um, and I found the whole, the whole process just absolutely invigorating. Well, lucky that day you you went down Pitt Street, not George Street, on the way to lunch. Um, I can I can say that. Um, now, look, of course, it was it was um, it was back of perpetual that you became known for being the PM of the Socially Responsible Investment Fund or the SRI Fund, which outperformed its benchmark by an average of six percent for five consecutive years and was winner of many awards. Now, I'm saying all this because I know you won't, out of humility, but you were then promoted to. Deputy Head of Equities, being responsible for 15 investment analysts, managing several separate client accounts and mandates, as well as the SRI fund and other typical leadership responsibilities. I guess the question is, how did you balance the the company um, management side of things with being a PM and having your head in the market? It's very hard. And I think when uh, when your tasks, you know, are beyond managing money, it does get difficult. So I, I couldn't say that I've really mastered that role there, but some of the things we've done since we started Ethical Partners really ensures that we can do that here. And I guess we've designed the process, the business, and the, the way we manage money so that most of our time can actually be spent on the thing that we love doing and and the thing that's greatly important to to the business. Look, I, I can't think of a better segue to talk a bit about Ethical Partners then. And, and why don't we start at the beginning from an investment point of view and perhaps if you could share with us your underlying investment philosophy, I guess the rules by which you invest, the principles that you rely on no matter what um, is happening in the market, no matter the company, no matter where we are in the cycle, no matter the macro. It always starts with understanding the business first. Before we even get close to trying to understand what price we want to pay for the business, there's a process there that uh, that I love going through when we pick up the you know the annual report for a new company. It's understanding the company, what drives the business, the key things that that turn the profit, um, and theoretically, uh, if you if you like a company at a dollar and when you've decided that that's the right price, you should like it more at eighty cents, uh, unless of course you've made a mistake in your original thesis, which is always which is always possible. But theoretically, you should like it more. And if you do understand the business, if you do have you've got your head into the details of that business and what's what part of the cycle it's likely to do well in, what part of the cycle it's not likely to do well in, and how various financial outcomes will affect the shareholders, it just increases your chances of actually being able to buy more when the share price falls and moves against you. You can't control where the market or where the share price will necessarily go. Um, and it doesn't always just go up after you buy your first round of stock. So I think understanding that core principle of understanding the business first is always where we start. And a natural extension of that and just moving more specifically perhaps 
into uh, to, to ethical partners. So the philosophy and style specifically ethical partners using that as a, as a basis? The philosophy and style here again is is very company specific. But what we've what we've done a bit differently is add in ESG factors into our core investment process. So alongside the financial and management fundamentals of balance sheet, cash flow, boards and management teams, we've added in, uh, and specially specifically added in, uh, a round of, of human rights, environmental, country, country and industry risk um, factors that we identify up front again and understand the company's approach to sustainability. And we put those alongside the financial and management capabilities of the business because we know that over time it's a very good way to think about risk. It's also a very good way to think about the opportunities for the business moving forward, especially in a world that's that's changing very rapidly. Uh, every week there's a you know a, a new I guess, theme in ESG and, and some of these themes will be enduring for a long, long time. So understanding them early, we think will, will give us a great advantage. Can we just talk about the macro for a second? Because it seems to dominate more and more, whether it be inflation, interest rates, government policy, and so on. Um, how do you factor in the macro components into that investment thesis? The macro is obviously very important for a range of reasons, but it does change very rapidly as well. So the way we like to deal with that is is really having a through-the-cycle view of some of those major macro themes, and that means as the headlines change, we don't need to change our view. We understand how companies react in different environments. Uh, some of the thing we observe with market participants is they use the macro to kind of as a as a shorthand to to understand maybe how rates or policy affects a whole range of companies in this in the same go and and with one stroke you know of a pen and one assumption you can you know people try and understand how that's going to affect the whole market whereas in reality uh, a lot of different factors will affect the company outcomes and they're all very specific. Um, there's not usually many of them that affect one particular company, but if you understand the key drivers of the business, you don't have to rely on these giant macro swings and roundabouts that occur. In fact, we often like to get set in our favourite company positions off the back of macro volatility. So if we understand the company better, we can then understand how the market might think about that and it may well allow us an excellent opportunity to buy some of the best companies we know uh, just on the basis of macro volatility, but uh, with the understanding that you know we we know the company fundamentals underneath that. All right. So keeping away from the macro and moving to company specifics, and we obviously don't give recommendations or advice on this podcast. But can you just um, maybe to illustrate some of the, that thinking, step us through some historical company examples of of where you think um, you know we've identified some of these traits and how you think about those. Absolutely. Uh, we bought GrainCorp a few years ago in the middle of a drought. Uh, we had identified that there were certain drivers in that company that we knew how that would go at different parts of the cycle. They're coming through today. Uh, we knew that the efficiency initiatives that the management team had put in really at the bottom of their cycle. Uh, we knew the value of the assets. So the company was trading below asset backing essentially at the time. Um, it received a actually received a takeover bid in 2018 that valued the company at $10.42. And if you add the demerged UMG group or United Milk Group to the GrainCorp share price today, it's actually trading a lot higher than that bid back in 2018. So we we successfully navigated the bottom of the cycle there. We probably bought but stock a little bit early 
Um, but essentially that equity has doubled from where it was at the bottom. And we did that because we knew that we knew what, I guess, additional volumes would do to the financials of that business. We knew that the efficiency uh, that the company had outlined would come through a different part of the cycle. And we backed ourselves to, to know that and do that. And it, and it's done well for our clients. Another one is Australian clinical labs, which is a, a float that's come through, uh, in the past 12 months that we own a substantial position in. Uh, again, with Australian Clinical Labs, we think the management team's put an excellent uh, business together and a, and a robust systems behind it. So when you add more volumes and, and COVID volumes or pathology volumes have been very high lately, the financial results have been terrific. So an excellent cash flow business with an excellent uh, balance sheet. And we think uh, a management team that will be very well regarded over time um, they've used the balance sheet optionality in the business to buy another or to purchase an acquisition in recent weeks. And we think that'll be a tremendous outcome for shareholders over time. So it's understanding what additional volumes can do for the core business. Another one that, uh, again, we purchased a few years ago, right at the bottom of the building cycle was CSR. Now the company again was trading close to its net tangible asset backing. The building volumes were in the doldrums. There was some one-off issues with the plant that they had commissioned uh, and the stock was in the low $3 range. And today the, the company trades at about $6. So CSR had a net cash balance sheet, excellent cash flows. Um, the sentiment was against it and you could buy the company at a depressed multiple um, on depressed earnings with a land bank and net cash and the land bank was worth about a third uh, of the share price at that time. So another one where we've gone against the grain, understanding the value of the assets in the business and, and assets are enduring and durable, whereas share prices are quite fickle. So we use that difference to, to try and time our entry into stocks where we see excellent value. And a lot to to grab out of that. One thing you did mention was uh, around Grain Corp, maybe, maybe buying too early. Um, yeah, just, just on timeframes, being a right or wrong can be a matter of timing often, but it's, it's worth obviously taking that long-term perspective, which, uh, which we do. Um, just talk to us about how you think about timeframes and when to invest and, and those components. Yeah, so you can be early in an investment, which essentially, uh, if you're too early, there's, there's no difference to being wrong. So, but what we do know um, that if we focus on the medium term, and you know, we know investors these days are very focused on the short term, and so people might sell stocks because there's no immediate upgrade or there's no immediate benefit to them. Uh, but we know if we focus on a slightly longer term time frame, and we're not talking too long because again, you can just essentially be wrong. But if you can focus on the medium term you will be able to buy at various times off people who have got a much shorter term timeframe. And when we're taking large positions in companies that we know well, uh, we know that within a couple of years, those circumstances can turn around and then suddenly the share price is done very well. And it all looks like it happens very quickly, but when you're going through that process, it happens very slowly. And if you're buying a stock that's on depressed earnings for depressed multiples, but you know at some point in the future, it's going to be more highly valued. Sometimes it can seem like a long time, but we try and keep our heads together and, and be patient about that and to, to get those results over the medium term. How, how important is knowing what you don't know? It's really important. Um, we think that uh, that you can really only 
do this job if if you know the companies well and if you suddenly find yourself in a situation that the stock's moved against you and and you suddenly don't understand where well, you're in you're in real trouble so that's why we do the work up front and we think that being aware of of your uh, fallibility or, or 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 areas or your blind spots is, is incredibly important and to keep your eyes wide open as you go into these situations and I know that um, learning about these companies, um, company visits are absolutely crucial at, at multiple levels of management and the board. How many do you reckon we've done in the last 12 months and, and what are you looking for when you sit down with the management team? We've done over 250 meetings in the past year. We do that uh, pretty much every year and we're looking for people who are who are humble and articulate and can actually uh, explain how a business makes money. Um, not only so we know but so we know that they know and I think that's really important that that people actually can explain things because if they can't really do that, we, we know that there's a lack of understanding there. We want to know that the management teams are aware of their own cycles and we want to know their risk tolerance as well. So we want to know that, you know, what's the board's uh, and the management team's view of gearing, um, tolerance to risk, tolerance to acquisitions and the like. And, and we think there's some really good insights to be had having those conversations. And, and a lot of those conversations, in fact, almost all of those conversations are, are right across the company from financial metrics to the broad range of ethical and ESG-related considerations that we look at. Now, we call that process or part of that process the Ethical Partners Operational Risk Assessment or the APORA. Now, I'm going to take credit for that acronym, if you don't mind. Um, but can you just run us through the APORA, um, what it means uh, and, and the different components? It was you that came up with that, Matt. So um, credit where credit's due. And look, the Apora is our in-house, the way that we systematically apply ESG across our investable universe. So this is, you know, why do we do that in a systematic way? Because, you know, we look at balance sheets and cash flow and management teams in a systematic way. We also think there's great value to be had looking at human rights environmental considerations, industry and country risk right across the investable universe as well. And the APORA process actually calls out all of those areas and the analyst team supported by the sustainability team at Ethical Partners actually is charged with doing that work alongside the fundamentals. And combining the two, we think, gives us really good insight into how companies are handling risks and opportunities. And then we recently amended it, or I guess you, you know, you've got to be progressive in these things. We amended it to the um, Ethical Partners Opportunity and Risk Assessment. Maybe just take our listeners through why that nuance changed there. We started thinking about ESG risks early on when we applied our invest, investment process to all the companies that, that, that we might invest in. And it's become apparent or really apparent over the past couple of years that there's a whole lot of opportunity in new business ideas, new revenue streams, the way a company's seen its reputation, um, where it can take its products in ESG. And so there's a tremendous opportunity attached to that as well. And as more solutions are needed across the world in different technologies and the way different products might be made going forward, um, those companies that have positioned themselves well ahead of the pack to to take advantage of those opportunities, we think that's going to be very, very good for shareholders. So that's a change there of our view and a, maybe a, a subtle change to the way we're thinking about that. We try and incorporate these things into our valuations as well. And so 
we think we've identified some 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 pretty good stories out there that will definitely be um, rewarded from those opportunities identifying those early. All right, we're going to come back to some ESG components shortly, but firstly, I want to talk about the cycle, and we've had an exaggerated cycle this time around due to COVID. Obviously, we've had the major fall off and the quick recovery, and it's been quite extraordinary. Um, how do you deal with cycles and and looking at, um, I guess, going against the grain and and buying when others are selling and and so on. And and we've talked many times here around um, the whole dot-com period of 99, 2000, obviously a really strong cycle you talked about when you were at Perpetual. And and quite often there's businesses there that are really good businesses. They're just at the wrong price. And I actually looked down that list of largest tech stocks at the peak of the 99, 2000 tech boom and some terrific companies, Microsoft and Cisco and Intel and Oracle and IBM, they're great companies, but it took them 10, 15 years to regain those highs. Um, And in fact, seven of the nine never regained those highs. Um, So so how do you think about looking at businesses and saying, yes, that's a good business, but it's just at the wrong price, we're at the wrong point in the cycle. Just talk to our listeners around how you weigh up those considerations. We try and understand whether the, the things that are going on are going to be temporary or permanent. And I guess calling that out, uh, well, first of all, doing the work on companies so you know if the cycle or the stock market's going against you, but you can buy more of a terrific company at lower prices, you know, that that's, uh, well, I won't say it's not relatively simple, but, you know, you, you can get by doing that every day of the week. But if you if you imagine you know, are these changes that are occurring likely to be permanent or likely to be temporary? And that will influence what you are likely or want to pay for a certain business. In in the dot-com case, a lot of those changes were long-term permanent but short-term temporary. And, and so the things that people imagined might happen uh, did happen, but over a much longer period of time. But people were just far more willing to pay the price for that in an immediate sense. And and they actually were temporary and the stock market corrected and then the prices all went back to a you know normal prices but i think i think determining whether the thing that's causing the market to move is going to be enduring or whether it's going to go away or can go away or can change and we know these things can can change rapidly um the influences can affect the market and stocks in particular and then and then they can go away just as just as quickly. And if you haven't been able to take the opportunity because you didn't have the confidence, then you just tend to miss the opportunity. Or if you if you wanted to avoid a particular part of the market because it was going up, um, then that's what you do. You know, you've got to you've got to back yourself in in knowing and thinking that you know, um, and can apply a different set of thinking at those times. And that leads us to the natural next question, I guess. Where do you think we are in the current cycle? We think the market in Australia is relatively uh, relatively valued, and and we think there's some still good opportunities here. I wouldn't say that across all developed markets around the world. We think the the US there are particular parts of of stock markets today that are that are highly valued, and and companies that don't make money have probably never seen a better environment to operate or list or have market caps higher than they are today. 
um, the number of unlisted you know, unicorns, they call these billion-dollar unprofitable unlisted companies, has never been higher. So there are some extreme valuations out there still, but a market like Australia has about 10% of it in healthcare and tech. And I think, you know, when we look across at the US, they're two of the, some of the most uh, highly valued areas and probably overvalued areas. And we think the ones with the most risks, that that makes up about 25% of the US market. So here we've got a a more cyclically dominated um, stock market. There's some pretty big mining sector stocks here that, that move with the cycle and move with underlying commodity prices. And we think, that that will hold this market up in relatively good stead uh, versus others as we go forward. It might be a good time now just to take listeners through how we're positioned overall. Yeah, sure. So we, we're positioned to take advantage of a cyclical upswing in those companies that are exposed to a commodity price cycle um, where demand has been increasing. So the economic cycle as we sit here today is still recovering from COVID lows and the, and the lows that we saw around demand. Um, there are some supply chain blockages around the world that are causing prices to go a little bit higher, but we would say that it's different to maybe 2000 and 2015, 16, where um, demand actually fell and supply was in pretty good. So the other way around these days and, and, and demand is still healthy. Uh, we think that the commodity cycle has a reasonable way to go. And that's driven by consumer demand and demand for those products underlying and also decarbonisation and some of these other big global themes that are going on today. So we think that's, you know, the analysts around the market or the consensus is that that cycle stops prematurely and is stopped by something like central banks moving rates probably early. We think that, you know, again, it's just not one factor that's important here. It's it's all of the underlying um, intricacies of all the companies that they're exposed to these supply chains. So we're positioned for um, broadly a cyclical uh, upswing continuing and the valuations of those companies as they build cash on their balance sheets we think are particularly cheap right now. But there's also a whole bunch of individually, uh, I guess, source companies and, and different factors like the agricultural space and and, uh, and even the pathology space we think are uh, probably pretty cheap today. All right. Now I've just got one eye on the time. Um, I'd like to move now on to all things sustainability and ESG. I mean, first statement slash question has got to be the space is rapidly changing, isn't it? Absolutely has become front and centre for most of the companies that we're talking to. It was probably a nice to have a couple of years ago, but uh, poor ESG management has, everyone would have seen, it's manifested itself horribly in some companies where executives have changed, boards have changed, share prices have tanked. What we've observed over the past couple of years is that it actually does take a number of years for a company to recover from that. So it's really become front and center. And then on the positive side, um, you know, businesses are moving quickly here and some are positioning themselves, as we talked about before, for these massive opportunities uh, in technology and solutions that, you know, frankly, the world needs. Um, but uh, those, those companies that are able to capture those, we think will drive tremendous value. So it's gone from a maybe what was thought of a, a side issue to something that's quite mainstream at, at all levels at, at most companies. Moving on to carbon, so the Ethical Partners Australian Share Fund has moved to a net zero target for 2050 um, for for carbon emissions. Um, and, and just digging into that a little bit more deeply, um, just, just talk to us about the approach that Ethical Partners will take to balance performance 
and carbon emissions um, in that particular fund because it's, it's pretty fascinating and I think the market's kind of grappling with that at the moment. There's a couple of ways we can actually manage the carbon emissions of a portfolio that we manage. One way is that we can change positions and, you know, we can change our portfolio positions. That won't always be in the best interest of our clients. So that, that's not our first port of call. What, what we do do is, is work with companies and observe what they'll commit to and how they'll get their carbon emissions down as they work through their operations. I think that's, that's the first thing that we, that we would say. Um, the next thing is that for those companies that haven't made the moves yet, we've got a lot of knowledge in the team here and a lot of experience dealing with these things. So we can encourage and engage and advocate for companies to move who, who don't seem to be moving as quickly as they need to. We can be supportive in terms of capital that needs to be spent within the business as well as a, as a shareholder and being on the register. We're interested in how companies make money today, but we're also interested in how they make money over the medium term. And, and some of those ESG risks have manifested in, in our in businesses that we don't own um, that we've been able to get ahead of, you know, doing, do, doing this kind of work. So companies will move to a certain extent themselves. We can encourage them and advocate and support them as they do. And the last thing we probably do is is change the portfolio. But we are very conscious that we, we not only have to run a fund with you know, carbon emissions and ESG targets and be conscious of that, we also need to achieve performance. So it's, it's understanding what companies can do and how they can change. And I think we've come to a view that we will be able to drop the carbon emissions of our ethical partners Australian share fund by 50% by 2030. And it's a combination of, of understanding and, and knowing that um, what companies will achieve and what we can do to help them in the intervening period. Another area that's moving really quickly is human rights and modern slavery. What's the, the ethical partners approach there? So that's a key part of our investment process. It's in the APORA part of our process. So we assess companies' supply chain transparency, the com- countries that they source products from, and also we read all of the modern slavery uh, and so the legislation that's driven that change, the fact that a board now has to sign off on that we think is tremendous and it's given a, a heightened awareness within companies that we talk to around modern slavery and human rights. So um, we look at uh, grievance mechanisms, we look at whistleblowing policies. So it's a very in-depth part of our process that we will rate companies on and some of the conversations we've had in that, uh, well, it's increased in the last couple of years from three years ago. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a heightened area for businesses and, and we think it should be. It's critical how companies deal with both their staff and also those that supply them with goods and services. And, and health and wellness is, is gaining in prominence as an issue, particularly during COVID where I think health generally has been a focus and people are becoming more and more aware of the importance of, of their health overall. What's, what's the thinking in this area and how are you looking at that with regards to the portfolio? To the extent that we can identify companies that will that will benefit from those trends, we think it's a really powerful trend. I mean, one of the reasons we own Blackmores is that again, tremendous balance sheet, cash flow, excellent management team, and this is a company that's front and center in those trends. And so, looking at the opportunity side for that company in the in today's environment, we think the opportunity set is growing and growing. And so that feeds into our valuation and what we're prepared to pay for the company. Now, they've got some pretty ambitious targets out there, but we understand how they can think about that in a world where that trend is is definitely picking up more and more. 
I thought it also worthwhile just touching on the fact that that all ethical or responsible investing is definitely not equal and, and digging below the surface is, is very important in determining the true nature of an investment manager or a fund. Can you just run us through the differences that you see out there with the approach taken to um, these ESG and ethical factors? I think fund managers need to be able to demonstrate the transparency that at least we're asking uh, for from companies. So when you look at your fund manager and they say they do ESG, we, we think the things that need to accompany that are well, how, how are you applying it? How does it affect your decision-making? Uh, what sort of reporting do you do and, and, and how do you engage with companies and, and show me the evidence of that? We do that. We report that. Uh, annually for our clients, we uh, we have we just released our engagement report um, that details all of our activities in this area. We think that to be engaged with voting um, and taking our own view with that is particularly important in any environment. But 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 right now is uh, you know we've just had a AGM season that uh, has been particularly heightened level of engagement with companies. And I think that's only set to increase and shareholders bring resolutions to companies more than they did before. And to set, assess those properly and carefully and make the right decisions uh, is a time-consuming task, but one that, you know, as a, as a manager of other people's money, we're, we're very interested in and, and spend a lot of time uh, implementing those decisions. Well, there's certainly a lot of debate and discussion around active managers versus passive managers. I'd, I can't see how you can do this thoroughly and genuinely passively. Um, I think you make a good point about engagement that engagement report that the team's put out is um, it's industry leading. So we encourage everyone to uh, jump onto the website and have a look at that engagement report. And I think, as you say, it's very hard to talk to a company about what it should be doing if the investment manager is not doing it themselves. So um, that was released just recently. Right. We're going to switch gears a little bit here to all the questions. The same questions we ask of all our guests would be fascinated to know your perspectives on some of these, Nathan. I think I have a few clues as to what your answers are going to be, but the listeners might not. So I'm going to ask ask these questions um, uh, just as we do. So the most important aspect of good leadership that is often overlooked. This one might not be overlooked by many, but probably me over time. And, and it's bringing your team along with you. Um, that's something that I've learned that, that that's really important to stop, make sure everyone knows where we're going and provide a clear path uh, where we're going and why we're doing it. So I think bringing, bringing the team along with you is, um, is really important. All right. So you're faced with two equally qualified candidates um, for a particular job, how do you determine who to hire? And I guess generally, what are you looking for in an investment analyst? So wrap all those together. If I had two equally qualified candidates for an investment analyst job, I would pick the person who does this in their spare time. So whatever they can demonstrate that says, hey, look, I'd do this job if I wasn't paid to do it, then that's the person I'd pick. And, and you know, it, that could be learning. It could be reading books by prominent investors. It could be investing their own money uh, or it could just be following stocks and learning about them. So anyone that does that, um, you know, we're, we're very attracted to that person because, you know, I think, I think it's true that everyone in this team who covers stocks would, would do that with their spare time if they weren't employed here. All right, there's a few clues there. We are actually looking for an investment analyst. Now, do you mind um, mentioning when you've made a mistake and perhaps what you learned from that and, and how that's set you up for success later? 
I remember uh, most, if not all, of my mistakes in graphic detail, uh, unfortunately, because you know I, th- I think it's important to learn from those. So one of the earliest stocks that I recommended uh, for a fund for a fund manager I worked for um, was a company called uh, CEC Group, and I had spent time with the management team. I had done all the work around the balance sheet. I'd visited the assets. I'd gone on a bus tour of the assets in Queensland, and so they they'd amassed a pretty good quality, uh, a bunch of uh, regional quarries. Uh, I think they had a recycling business as well and a, and a, and a land bank within the business. So I thought the assets were good and the management team was okay um, and done all the fundamentals. And so the company then proceeded to keep on buying things and stretch the balance sheet so far that the banks actually got nervous around the banking covenants. And so I, of course, didn't see this coming. Uh, I wished I had of. Um, the stock tanked at the time. And Peter, who I was working for then, essentially took the decision out of my hands and sold the whole position. And I'm glad he did because in time, the company got into further financial trouble and I don't think it's listed today. So I learned the value of a really good portfolio manager in that moment who could essentially assess where I was at, assess where the company was at and make the right decision. So what I take away was that if the, if the company's doing things that you don't expect, if the company's saying one thing and doing another thing or their actions demonstrate that they're doing another thing, sell quickly and early, even if it's down. All right. And then linked to that, what's the most common investment mistake you see repeated generally most often? The most common investment mistake I see repeated uh, most often is just to pick one or two big macro factors that are easy to talk about and think about and apply in a in a haphazard fashion to to companies. So I think that's a again, it's a shorthand way of determining what the answer is going to be. The answer is never going to be that that simple in the market. Yet you see the macro dominate. Yet you see companies thrown out on macro news. And you know we think if we can be ahead of that in terms of understanding where individual companies are at, uh, that'll just throw up more opportunities for us. Pretty clear theme through a lot of the answers. Given the volatility that we've seen over the last 18 months, have you had to amend the way you think about risk? We haven't had to change that or, or amend it. The, the market, we think, will you know, remain volatile, always be, always be that underlying volatility. But the simple fact that we do work before we make investments and we study companies vigorously before making a decision about whether we want to own them um, hasn't changed and won't change and actually leads us um, – more often than not, to the right answers through that volatility. Uh, and if you had to name one person who's inspired you the most in any aspect of, of your career, who would that be? I'll choose three. Uh, I will say Peter Morgan and John Sevier and Matt Williams. And, and these are all individuals that are, are very, very talented at the, the job that I love doing. And they're also the three that, that gave me terrific opportunities at times to prove myself. So I'm very um, inspired by the, them all and, and and also very grateful for the opportunities that they, they afforded me. All right. Now, we really are winding down. Um, a few final general questions. What are you reading right now? Uh, the World for Sale is a book that I'd highly recommend. It's about the commodity trading houses that are uh, privately owned and unlisted and include the likes of Glencore and Vitol and what those – what those organisations get up to and some of the stories behind is a is a fascinating read, one of the best books I've read. Um, and thank you for lending it to me. I haven't started it yet, but I promise I will read it shortly. Um, sounds really interesting. Um, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? I'd say be more patient. 
All right. What wakes you up at night or keeps you up at night? Being ill-prepared for things. <laughs> we just have to get up then and, and start preparing. I always do, and, <laughs> and I worry the most about being ill-prepared for markets or what markets might throw at us from an investment sense. Um, so that's something, you know, that, that if I feel ill-prepared for things, yeah, I will get up and actually read things and, and make sure mentally that I'm actually ready for, for what the market might throw at you the next day. All right, just wrapping up now. So we're going to play this game. We've got two options only, and you must answer one. Very quickly, off the top of your head, answer back immediately. If you think about it too much, then um, it won't work. EBITDA or net profit? Net profit. Value or growth? Value. Alfie Langer or Steve Mortimer? I know why you're asking me this, and I, I know I don't know much about rugby league, but I, I didn't prefer the Broncos or the Bulldogs, so I'm going to say neither. <laughs> a Tesla or a mainstream car manufacturer's new electric model? I'd choose a mainstream car manufacturer's new electric model. Um, there's something about Tesla that, that the cash flow and, 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 and balance sheet and, and valuation for the company just don't stack up for me, so I wouldn't buy that car. All right. Well, Nathan Parkin, it has been an absolute pleasure and uh, thank you very much for being a key guest on the Good Investing Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.